This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Farnslow, and today I finally got my schedule linked up with Chad Austin. You might know Chad from Austin Automotive in Cannon City, Colorado. You might also better know him from his YouTube channel, The Practical Mechanic. Are you tired of searching for trained technicians? If so, let NAP Autotech help you build a technician with their Build-A-Tech program, kind of like Build-A-Bear. These three-day courses cover one of four individual topics, brakes, electrical, steering and suspension, or HVAC through a combination of classroom lecture, hands-on, and utilizing training mock-ups. Visit NapaAutotech.com. All right, welcome to the podcast, Chad. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm glad this finally worked out. It's been too long. (laughs) Yeah, I think we've been trying to get our schedules lined up for about six weeks. I'm sorry about that. Oh, it's fine. You know, summers are busy. I mean, the first thing... I got to level with you. I always thought you were a mobile guy. I just assumed you were a mobile tech. No, we we do brick and mortar. I do very minimal mobile work. Um, I do some stuff just for the other shops in town for programming. Um, But for customers off the street, um, occasionally we'll do some locksmith stuff, but almost everything is done in the shop. It sounds like we might be uh, reflections of each other, except you have a strong YouTube channel that you upload lots of videos that are um, really good. They're informative and relevant to us. It sounds like our day-to-days might be pretty close. Yeah. I mean, I'm the, sh- the shop foreman at our shop. Um, it's a family-owned shop. So, you know, we have uh, right now, I think, six technicians in the back. Uh, my sister started working for us in the office a couple of years ago. Uh, my dad started the business back in 2001. But I've been around the automotive repair business for my entire life. I mean, I've always been in the shop wherever he was working. I would walk to to the shop that he worked at before he started his own. I'd walk there after school and just, you know, hang out. So I've been around it my whole life. So this is a pretty good sized shop, six techs. Yeah, we're uh, our shop. It's 5,000 square feet of uh, repair space. Honestly, we're, we're probably a little over packed in there with our technicians. Uh, we had to divide some of our bays up and add some extra hoist and put more people in there, which is you know frustrating at times, but we just, we needed the, the manpower. And honestly, I, I could probably do with uh, three or four more employees if I had the space. I hear you. I definitely hear you. I know a lot of people don't like to be booked out and there's coaches that'll say that we're doing it wrong, <laughs> but our automotive repair is booked out about five or six weeks and our nice. oil change schedule is booked out four weeks. Um, I, that's that's pretty impressive, actually. We uh, we schedule seven oil changes a day, um, but on average, we probably do ten because some of those oil changes are getting done by our line techs because it's a yeah. part of another job. I mean, at the end of the day, sure, the theory is that if you're booked out much more than a week or two, your rates are too low. But on the flip side, if you're paying your bills and everyone's making a good living and you can afford to consistently keep evolving the the business and increasing and or upgrading equipment. What's the point? Like, why do you need? We're the most expensive independent shop in our town. I'm guessing it's because you can get stuff done though. You can do stuff and we'll do stuff. The uh, other repair shops have very little interest in trying. Or they've tried and failed. Yeah. So we do, we do get a lot of, uh, you know, we're the last resort for a vehicle. 
you know, it's a, uh, it's already been to three of the shops. It's been to the dealer. Um, so those are, those are my headaches that I get. <laughs> Unfortunately, how big is Cannon city? We're a prison town. Our, our city population, I think on the map shows like 20,000, but we have 13 prisons. So, I mean, I don't know if that's included in our population or not. Oh, sure. <laughs> and those, they don't have cars. Yeah. Um. But we, uh, <laughs> we actually have people that drive over an hour from the big cities to come to us. Um, we have people that drive down weekly from Colorado Springs, um, which is about 45 minutes from us. And Colorado Springs is a huge town, but they can't find a mechanic they can trust. So they take the drive down to us. And a lot of times those people will drop it and leave it for a week. You know, they'll get a ride. Um, we have people that come from 60 miles away up in another mountain town because none of the shops, some of the shops up there aren't accepting new customers. They're, they're almost like doctors. They, uh, <laughs> they want to take just the gravy. Um, there's only one shop up there that's doing air conditioning work, which is kind of crazy. Really? Even the dealer is blowing people off. They have a big Chevrolet and Dodge dealer. So we, we are now getting customers driving 60 miles down the mountain to come to us. Um, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like roughly what would your elevation be? So we're at 5,300. We're the same as Denver. We're just two hours south. So we're, we're mile high. Um, the, the next town, they're probably at or 60 miles away, the mountain town where the people are coming from. They're probably at 8,500 feet. I mean, your weather, that's got to be somewhat similar to us in that you have a good four or five months of heat. Yes. That's odd. Um, and actually, in, in that mountain town, two shops have just closed down in the last six months. Um, one guy inherited a bunch of money and decided he didn't need to run a shop anymore, so he shut down. And another guy uh, was getting old and retired and shut down. So the the shop pool in that town has uh, dropped down a little bit, but there's still five or six shops. I mean, I'm not kidding you. The parallels here are striking to me. I don't know the shop I work at is it's about 16 to 20,000 population. It's roughly an hour drive North or um, an hour drive South to get to a larger population. You know, the Minneapolis St. Paul is about an hour North of us. Rochester is about an hour South of us. We're the most expensive. We're doing stuff like it sounds like almost exactly like you do. So personally, like your day to day work, what are you doing? Do you do everything bumper to bumper or? Yeah, the only thing we don't do is internal transmission work and body work. Basically, we do everything else. Um, we don't really do a lot of uh, 8S calibrations. We don't have the space for it yet. Um, we're, we're talking about adding it, but we haven't had a demand for it. And I know that one, you know, if you build it, they will come type of deal. Um, if we had the equipment, we would probably get more demand, but we're on the fence right now. We, we do so much stuff now that we don't have time. So adding one more thing I think would make it difficult. But how about like you personally, what is your day? Do you yourself do everything bumper to bumper? I, I do. If it's, if it's needed of me, um, I don't like to do jobs that are more than four hours long because I don't get left alone long enough to do those jobs. So that, that four hour job may take me 10 hours. Whereas, you know, I can hammer out AC jobs, diagnostic work, um, programming stuff all day long. And then in between those jobs, I can help the other technicians. I would say we're almost mirror. There are certain You're jobs. You're way better looking than me, but other than that. <laughs> That's uh, just because I'm not mirror. on camera. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, there's some stuff that I will 
specifically do myself because I can, I know I can do it twice as fast as anyone else in the shop. I try to do like the super head gaskets. When, when I have time in my schedule to do them, I prefer to, prefer to do those because I've done so many of them that I can hammer them out very quickly. If someone else in the shop is doing them, I just hand them like my special sockets that I may have modified to, to squeeze down in there a little better or whatever it may be. I just say, here's the sockets you're going to need for that job. There's certain stuff that if I can, if I have time, I'll do it. And then sometimes we, you know, cause we do engine replacements. We normally install Jasper, um, a few other remanufacturer refactoring companies for uh, transmissions, but mostly it's Jasper. Um, some of these new engine or vehicles, you know, that's a 30 hour job. It's not just a 10 or 12 hour engine swap anymore. Even just a normal Chevrolet pickup is 28 to 30 hour job. So that's pretty much tying up one of my technicians for half the week. It's crazy. Isn't it? Sometimes we, uh, I have too many technicians tied up on big jobs and I just have to handle a bunch of the, you know, the four or five hour jobs to get us through. But I prefer the, the one hour jobs just so I'm not bottlenecking myself. I mean, I think you're quite a bit younger than I am. So real R and R work I haven't had to do. And man, it's, it's probably seven years or more once in a great while, maybe a, a front brake job or I guess rear too, but once in a great while in alignment, I don't remember the last time I think I pulled an engine once, man, it was probably 15 years ago. It's just, there's no time. There's, it just doesn't work in our um, system. And at this point now, I, I would be so terrible at it. It would be a horrific management move anyways. Now, do you have other technicians in your shop that do those jobs? We struck really um, kind of gold, lucky. I've got three other guys that, two of them, I can tell you, they. I've never seen people consistently turn hours like they do at the quality they do live. I know they're out there. I, I mean, I know nationwide there's a lot of guys like them and probably way better even but in our system and our shop just consistently doing mainly the part hanging stuff uh we've so lucked out and then i got another guy that's kind of a swiss army knife he does a lot of the alignment type stuff but whatever job we put him on maybe not quite as fast as the other two but it's always good work and he doesn't complain put him on a sunroof replacement on a freaking um Jaguar, he never made a peep. He did it. It was time and material, and it worked when he was done. It looked so nice. He's that guy. It's taken many, many years to do it, but I don't know what I'd do without him because they really enable me to do the stuff I do, and hopefully I enable them to do the stuff they do. You know, Hopefully it's symbiotic. I think we all have guys in our shops that, you know, I, I got one guy that's his efficiency rate is probably 60% or productivity rate. Yep, yep. He does all the stuff that no one else will do or wants to do. Got to have those guys, right? We have a few accounts that we probably wish we didn't have. They're accounts that have been with us since the beginning. One of them is a rafting company down the street, and we uh, we DOT their buses, and we do minor repairs on their buses, and it's something that we wish we could we didn't have to do anymore. But because we've been doing it for so long, we, we would feel bad if we uh, if we told them no. Can your shop handle those buses if you have to do some work? Like, do you have the ceiling height and the hoist to get them off the ground? Because I'm guessing it's those, um, I don't know what's a good description of those buses. Uh, they're, they're all retired school buses just from the school oh, district. Oh, yeah, okay. So they're like, they're old. <laughs> you know, the, the newest one's probably a 96. I mean, they're yeah. they're all from the 90s. 
not what I was thinking. I was thinking of like some of those really big hotel shuttling buses or not like a Greyhound platform, kind of like that. Um, but smaller, like they might be the, it might be like a Ford E series. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or sh- even Chevy express. Yeah. No, these are the legit like medium duty or heavy duty school buses. Do you have the guy, you have the space and capability to like lift that stuff or is it? We normally don't lift those on a rack. We don't have a rack that can support those or that they can fit on. So they're normally, if we have to jack up the front end to check the suspension for the DOT, you know, we have a, like a 10,000 pound floor jack. Nice. So it's air, air over hydraulics. So, you know, it's not a huge deal to, to just do the DOTs actual repair work. We normally just send that down the road to the truck repair facility yeah nice but being that we're two blocks away most stuff they come back to us for you know if a if their vehicle doesn't have any power it's a no start whatever it may be we normally get involved and you know check it out but old enough school buses to be gassers or are they diesel no they're all diesel um some of them are the old seven threes a bunch of the brazilian diesels uh the (laughs) the newest ones they got because some of the old ones are starting to get so worn out, they're they're getting rid of them. But the new ones have a a cat motor, which I think it has less power than the seven three has. So the drivers hate driving it. They're kind of junky. Um, you know, yeah. they're they're the raft company that has the oldest buses, but yeah, they've been around for the longest. <laughs> yeah, I think I can picture these in my head because it isn't anywhere near us, but towns surrounding us, they have um like tubing. It's kind of that same scenario. They have these big old buses that they haul people at the, you know, whatever the beginning is up, up river and drop them off. And they're not in all that good of shape. Picture that you guys have a lot of rust out there. Or? No. So we, we have, we have no rust, <laughs> you know, very minimal. If a vehicle comes in with rusty bolts, we're like complaining out the, you know, we just, uh, we, we can't stand it. We have a couple of customers with vehicles that are from other places. And we have like big notes on them, like do not lift on a two post. You know, this vehicle, <laughs> we're not doing more than basic maintenance on this vehicle. But that's how you get good at brake lines, man. You know, I don't think we've ever had to replace a brake line for rust here. What? Yeah, we have. We don't have any rust. <laughs> we're basically the desert in the mountain. All right, then that whole mirror image thing <laughs> over. I'll have to win. <laughs> yeah, our average humidity is like twenty percent. Oh man, um, nosebleeds. And they, yeah, uh, we had uh, not just because of the altitude. <laughs> We actually had Rich Falco and Bryn Klein come out a couple of years ago to teach a scope class and they couldn't drink enough water. They were like, you know, like cotton mouth or dry mouth. The They're whole from time. Florida. <laughs> They're used to like 90%. Yeah. So they, they, they don't even have to drink water there. They just breathe it in and absorb it. They were struggling. And w- one of the moments I remember from that trip is uh, I took them up to our local tourist. We have a Royal Gorge Bridge. Um, it's a thousand feet above the river. So it's just this huge gorge. And uh, it started raining, and, and Bren ran back to the car. He's like, oh, that rain's freezing cold. I'm like, what kind of rain is there? I thought that was the only type of rain. But apparently in Florida, <laughs> the rain is warm. Very. Yeah, they could just take showers in it and save water. Yeah, ours is it's like ice water. Um, I just thought that was normal. <laughs> I guess we get both. In the summer, it can be pretty warm, and then, not, you know, not winter. I guess if, if it rains in the winter, it's usually a really, really bad day. Really good for collision shops. <laughs> Uh, everyone else, it's terrible. And, you know, we're in kind of a weird spot in Colorado. We uh, we probably get five snowstorms a year where we get more than three inches. 
and it might only oh, be really? six inches of snow. We rarely, uh, and it, and it's gone in two days. So it's, it's kind of like a, a happy medium of you're in Colorado, you're in the mountains, you know, you're, you're not being bombarded with snowstorms and all this other stuff. You're also not out in the, in the prairie, you know, Eastern Colorado is basically Kansas. Yes. That's a rough drive. I used to live and work in garden city, Kansas. And so the, it was about three hours, roughly three hour drive from there to Denver. And the first few hours is rough, just flat. Like basically Colorado Springs and Denver, everything to the east is just prairie. I hate going out there because it's just like for the next 15 hours, if you drove, it looks the same <laughs> all the way through Kansas. When we go to Vision, we normally drive just because it's like a, it's a 10 hour drive or eight hour drive. It's just easier. I'm going to spend eight hours in the airport or eight hours driving. And at least if I drive, then I have my own car when I get there. <laughs> so we, true. we just drive out there. And it's just, it's such a boring drive. There's just nothing there. Yeah, it probably doesn't really change much until you hit maybe, what, Topeka? And then that's the last, is that roughly three hours to Kansas City, roughly? Yeah, something like that. And, oh, I mean, you always have the wind, so you have to pay attention. You have to, you know, turn your steering wheel about 20 degrees off and go straight <laughs> down the road. Gas oh, mileage man. is terrible. Or you go under an underpass and you get out of the wind and your car changes lanes on you. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, you know, I, I on my day to day, I diagnose most vehicles, um, minor repairs, sensors, solenoids, whatever I diagnose on that vehicle. If it's not a you know, big job, then I'll take care of it. Um, any programming events I normally take care of. I have, I have one other guy in the shop that is comfortable programming GM, and that's basically it. That's that's all I've really given him to program. Um, I could probably train him up to to program anything, but. Well, some of this stuff, it's not so much the programming itself. Like GM, once you're in, it's not so bad. Ford's probably the easiest, but like Chrysler, Chrysler, once you're in, is easy. But it's the hoops to jump through to get in. Or GM sometimes, it's the hoops to jump through, like if the password changes. Yeah, you know, you can't use that password. You have to click forgot password and reset your password. And, oh, you you can't use the same password that you've used in the last five events. That's pretty brutal. So that's one of those things that passwords kind of drive me crazy with all these different manufacturers. I, I wish we could have a uh, a global password for all OEMs. Right. Or, or use some sort of a, um authenticator app or something that yeah. just speeds it up. If I could have a single password for all these companies and then have to change that one every month, I would be okay with that. <laughs> you know? But some of them don't require you to ever change it. So I have this really old password and I can never remember it. I always have to go look at my notes to <laughs> yeah. see what it was. And then other ones, you know, GM, I have to change every three months. Chrysler, I think I have three different passwords depending on which part of their website I'm logging into. It's like, okay, are we uh, logging into Stellantis or, or Mopar, TSP or Tech Authority? And then when you get into the scan tool, oh, that's a different password. And I haven't figured out how to make them all the same or, or link them together. Whatever it is, I think it just works the way it is, so I just leave it alone. And, right. That's what I do. Once I get it working, I really don't mess with it. The most annoying thing to me is I've paid the money. I've jumped through the hoops you set up for me. I did everything this you need me to do to make this work, and then it doesn't work. That really chaffs me. Yeah, lately I've been having a lot of trouble with uh, Ford IDS. You know, I have a VCM3. I have IDS, you know, full subscription. 
I swear I struggle for about 20 minutes to get that vehicle to communicate and then I'm good. You know, yeah. it's like I have to reset the VCI over and over and over again, unplug the OBD connector, unplug the USB connector, reconnect it. Now, the other day I did a full hard reset um, and it seems to be working okay now, but we'll see. And then other times the software just locks up. Yeah. Um, I'll go into a t- uh, another screen and IDS just goes blank and it won't let me continue, won't let me close it out. So I have to force close it and I've installed it on three different laptops I have and it responds the same way on all three. So I don't know if it's a VCI issue or the VS VCM three, or if it's just that their software is terrible, man, I'd be really worried about the VCM. I need to call Rotunda, I guess, because I think it has a two year warranty and see if that one is still covered. I guess you could try flip flop and like USB cables, which you've probably already done. Yeah. I don't have another uh, matching OBD cord for it. Right. I think the MDI two is probably the same. They they look about the same, but I don't have an MDI two, so I thought about just ordering the the interface cord and uh, trying that. But I think that it's something wrong in the interface. I I probably just need to send it in and get it rebuilt. Yeah, you said you're programming GMs. No MDI two. You're using MDI or a Cardac three plus. Cardac. Um, nice. I, it really depends. For most of my programming, I, I have the Cardac M. Um, I just bought the Cardac Plus 3 from Isaac just because people have better luck with it on the Nissans. So I figured I better have it. We don't do a lot of Nissans. We do you know, a transmission every six months, but most of them have been old enough where they didn't need special programming. Um, but now we're getting to the range where I have to program them. And so far, two out of two... Um, Consult has bricked the module. <laughs> you know? Oh, jeez! And so I have to go in with NERS and and recover it. Yep. So that's why I'm like, okay, I need a new interface. The VI three is not really available unless you want to pay double or triple. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's like PlayStation fives for a while. Yeah, I just saw a vendor selling hit hit a whole stack of VI threes, and he wants thirty six hundred dollars. I'm like, Yikes. oh, I'll pass. Yikes! I lucked out and got my hands on a VI two, but damn. And even then, dealer technicians are struggling to not brick modules. You know, yeah, they don't really mention that to us, though. When it happens to us, they don't really mention like, oh, yeah, it's kind of a common problem. Dealer techs are that that seems to get swept under the carpet. You know, even though I bought the stuff to do locksmith work, I don't know if I ever want to add keys to a Nissan Rogue because I don't do enough of it to remember which modules brick the the BCM. Right. You know, <laughs> I, I think I have a cheat sheet somewhere in my Google Drive. But it's just one of those things like, how can you produce this car that your software doesn't work with or that has this weird glitch? Yeah. See, I think I thought you were mobile a lot because I think my real first introduction to you that I really remember vividly was more in the EEPROM world or at least a mobilizer. And I think that's why I just made this creative leap that you were a mobile tech. I try not to. I mean, you know, mobile techs that are set up for it. Yeah, it's great. When you're not set up for mobile work, it's terrible because I can't remember. Like I get somewhere and it's like, oh, I need that one tool that I didn't bring. Same. Every time. So I'd much rather just do it at the shop where I have all of my tools, all the space. And a lot of stuff, honestly, the the immobilizer stuff, the instrument cluster repairs, um, I do that after we close. Like if someone wants that stuff done, like I need the vehicle for a couple of days because there is no labor guide for that stuff and you don't know what you're going to run into. I don't know if it's good or bad. I mean, fundamentally it's 
for me personally, it, it is probably good that uh, my boss is pretty cool. letting me do that stuff on company time and we just build what we can. But in retrospect, like, you know, just pure math, it should be stuff I did on my own. Like I should have had my setup, especially for like circuit board level stuff, instrument cluster repair stuff. I probably should have had my setup at home and then I could just kind of do that and then build a shop. But I, I kind of got an office set up at work and, you know, maybe now on GM instrument cluster stuff that I've done a few that we probably do pretty well on now, but there's a while where I know it was, it was a loss. And that's another another thing about doing it at home. You know, then you have to have a setup to where you can hook a scan tool up to it yep. and test it. Whereas yep. when I'm at the shop, I just plug it back into the vehicle. It's easier to plug it back into the vehicle and use a scan tool to command the needles where I want them yep. than it is to actually pin it out on the back of the board. So if you're doing it at home, well, now you have extra time and labor involved unless you go buy a bunch of connectors from the junkyard for those common instrument clusters. I, I just like having the vehicle there. I don't blame you one bit. At least for the clusters lately, a lot of times they're just dropping the cluster off. And if I know the your make and model between like the Go Diag DLC breakout box and a few of the connectors that I've started to make myself. So Tommy Oliva was telling me about what he's doing with just either buying pigtails or connectors from the dealer. Uh, or like you said, the salvage yard. And so I started doing that more and more. There's some stuff from like, I don't know if bench force makes them for clusters. They have them for modules for sure. Bought a couple of those. I also don't want to imply that I do this a lot. Maybe at GM instrument clusters. I probably do them a few a month, but like actual module cloning and bench programming and all that. I, I don't, I would not want to, uh, exaggerate it's not that often i'm tooled up like i probably do but it's really anticipate i'm anticipating doing this more and more often yeah i have a lot of the tooling as well and honestly i've probably only programmed three computers on the bench um it's just not something i normally get into yeah. um eprom stuff i have you know the, the autel xp 400 um i have some other interface I can't remember what it was, like the TL-866 or whatever. That, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, have, yeah. I have one of those. I've never taken it out of the box. I've never never plugged it in. You know, I bought this stuff. I've used it once. Because I went to classes about that. And I'm like, I might need this someday. So I <laughs> bought it and I've never used it. Um, I have a, like an older KESS you know, programming unit. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And KTAG. And I've never... I don't think I've ever even installed the software, you know, because I haven't had a need for it. And it's one of those things when I do need it, I'm not going to be able to get it to work (laughs) (laughs) or I'll spend eight hours messing around with it. Um, It's really a struggle because like there's money to be made at that. But at the same time, I could do an AC job and make more money and not even have to think about it or program a vehicle just regular programming and make more money and not have to think about it and not have to, other than trying to get, you know, TechLine connect to work or <laughs> whatever it may be. Um, there's easier ways to make money for me than going the EEPROM route. Definitely. But, but there's some guys that love EEPROM and they have it figured out and they have all the information in their head and they can just go and go and go and 
and they can make money at it. You know, they can, they can charge someone 300 bucks to, to reset a module or make a used module blank. So you can use it in another vehicle. And, and I don't know what the going rate is for that. Honestly, you know, it seems like most of them are 150 to 300 bucks, depending on what's being done. And they can, they can do it because they do it all day long. Yeah, exactly. Or when they started it, it worked out that they got enough of it or were in a situation where they could go and pick up a bunch of modules from either shops or um, salvage yards and practice. I'm like you. I went to a class or two and it's kind of like, I think this is going to be something to prepare for. And I want to be that either that guy or that shop that can, can do this, can offer this service to other repair shops. Like a lot of what I, a lot of what we do, a lot of, my strategy is not just to help the customers at our front counter, but also the surrounding repair shops to offer services to them to help them out too. Many of these purchases are anticipatory and like you, I would spend a lot of time just even getting set up to do it before I actually can do the job. But the idea is hopefully if this um, supply chain issue keeps the way it is and probably more importantly where cars just are not designed to have used parts put on them used modules that the new stuff is price prohibitive cost prohibitive uh, the used ones may remain affordable but i don't know that may backfire on us too because you got the bigger companies that repair modules or prepare used modules for use you know, borderline plug and play, or at least virginized, they're buying up a lot of these inventories, driving the prices up. So they become cost prohibitive too. So this whole, this whole idea of mine may backfire. And honestly, I don't know how they get away with it. Um, you know, I think there needs to be some, uh, legislation or government step in. I know the right to repair stuff is always a, a big fight, but just the electronic waste. I think they need to make these modules, even if you have to have a, a VSP to put a used module in a vehicle. They need to have a way that we can use a used module legitimately and not have to buy third-party software or or crack crack it open and jumper boot pins and change the bootloader and or use specialized tools like IO terminal. It needs to be a factory supported method for these used modules. You know, and I've I've seen people use like uh I've seen videos of the like GM engineering software. Yeah. Um DPS or something like that. Yeah. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> no, I, that's above I my know the grade. name. Yeah. Yeah. I know the name and I know people that use it and have, have, have it. I don't have it. And, and they can go in and they can change the VIN number on used modules and, yep. and they can go in and, and reset modules that are kind of bricked. So the tools are there, but I've heard that that's one of those like super complicated softwares. That's what I was just going to say is, you know, you can go and find it online. Great. You order it. Now you have it. But you can't use it. <laughs> yeah. You don't download the software on a laptop, get whatever listed interface or probably, again, probably back to some sort of a harness to plug directly to the module pins. And then it's just right there. Like click this button to rewrite VIN, click this button to copy and this button to paste. I don't think it's like that at all. From what I saw, it looked like it was all code. Right, exactly. And I understand that, you know, talking about those softwares is kind of taboo because we're not supposed to have access to those. And, and anyone that does, it's, you know, an illegally downloaded software. Um, but 
seeing videos of it on the internet, I know that it is possible to use a used module in that vehicle using GM software. Yeah. They just don't give us access to it. Yep. All it does is create a lot of electronic waste. And that's where I agree with you wholeheartedly that from the OE level, the manufacturer level, that for us to be able to get VSP credentials or some sort of a credential, and VSP makes the most sense because of the background checks and all that, that would gain us access to this stuff to be able to do this stuff legitimately. We're not doing it to um, take advantage of a customer or the corporation or the the manufacturer. We're doing it because we want to fix the car. Yeah, that's where I agree with you. I couldn't agree with you enough that if I could have some sort of credentialing or they could use my VSP that would grant me access to do this all legitimately under the umbrella of the manufacturer, just the same as with the factory tooling, factory scan tool, stuff like that. It, it only makes sense. I think all they would have to do is, you know, you'd fill out a D1 form, obviously with the vehicle owner information, whatever it may be, like your normal VSP stuff. But then the software is going to look at the current VIN number in that module and it's going to store that with your with your D1 or whatever the information is so that it can reference to see if that module was stolen. That's the whole thing, right? Is they don't want yeah. us to to use stolen modules. They don't it's part of the security system. So they don't want us to be able to swap a module and get a vehicle running. Yep. Well, if they went through the proper steps and documentation, it should be no issue. Exactly. That being said, I install maybe two or three used modules a year in vehicles. So, and I don't know if that's just because we're in a dry area that we don't have all the issues that everyone else seems to have. I probably replace one computer a month is all. And it, who knows what the, the failure may be. It could be a wide array of things, but it's not a common thing that we're doing in our shop. And some people, it seems like it's every week, or at least that's what they're posting on Facebook. For 98 years, the Napa name has meant quality parts and service. It also reflects top quality training programs to help you build a more successful vehicle repair business. No doubt, the technician shortage is impacting everyone, but you're not facing this battle alone. Napa has the solution by making Napa AutoTech training available near you. Napa AutoTech provides automotive aftermarket technicians career development opportunities through structured, disciplined, measured, and high-quality technical instruction, no matter the technician or service advisor skill level. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. This instruction enhances understanding of vehicle systems, increases first-time repair capability, and overall customer satisfaction. It also prepares technicians to become ASE certified. It's a fact technicians who receive training to improve their knowledge and skills have a higher sense of job satisfaction. This reduces technician turnover and increases productivity, directly improving a shop's profitability. It is vital to the success of a shop's business that today's technicians are equipped to diagnose and repair today's complex vehicles. With our ever-changing technology, the technician's knowledge and skills need to be updated and refreshed on a regular basis. As you labor over the decision of whether to send your techs to get their skills sharpened, keep in mind, Napa AutoTech training is an investment, not an expense, and it's available to all. Much of Napa Autotech's training is offered in more than one format to accommodate varieties of learning styles and training preferences so each person can maximize their learning. Whether you're more of a hands-on person or enjoy learning at your own pace, Napa Autotech is here to provide you with the training you need and the format that works best for you. To learn more about what Napa Autotech offers, contact NapaAutotech.com. 
if you want to watch me get destroyed by a car, it's going to be because it has a bad module and it's not obviously bad, at least in my eyes. I will struggle. I have a very rough time putting new modules in cars because it always seems like it never fixes it. And if I do and it fixes the car, it's the celebration is less about I'm awesome and more like relief. But that said, dealing with used modules, I probably do a few, uh, at least a few a month, but they're not replaced by our shop. The other shops send them to me that they want the used module put in it. Okay. And, you know, there's certain used modules that I'm familiar with. Um, You know, some of the older Chrysler stuff. I know how to work around changing the VIN, resetting the skim, um, changing the calibration when Chrysler doesn't allow you to do that. And I wish I would have known about that, you know, five or 10 years ago. Oh, dude. The same rafting company, they also do Jeep tours. And we had a, an 06 Rubicon with, with a bad computer. Um, it was set in transmission over temp codes. You could flex the board and the transmission temp would change. Nice. We ordered an ECM. They were on back order. Um, we, we had to wait like four months to get this ECM. And I, I think they're completely unavailable now. The technician at the dealer programmed it for a non-Rubicon. Oh, man. And they don't have the way, they, they didn't know of any way of changing that calibration. And I at the time, I didn't either. So they actually had to send that ECM off to a, a rebuilding company to have it virginized and sent back to them. So that Jeep was down for another two weeks while we waited for this thing to happen. And now, you know, it wouldn't be an issue for me to just jump in and, and edit the file and exactly and change it. If, if I had known about this in the past, yep. but that's another one of those things that why doesn't the OEM let us do it? See, I thought Chrysler, this would be quite a few years ago, though, but it would have been around the time of probably YTech 1.0 with the original pod. So they had kind of gone away from the uh, Star Mobile and Star Scan and they're going to that first pod i thought it was a chrysler program called force flash that would um allow you to flash over so the part number of the module is correct but it didn't have the part number or calibration number that would allow you to write over it with the new calibration but this would allow you to do that so i had that and it worked once and then i got another vehicle somewhat similar situation as yours put the used one in force flash doesn't work. And then uh, a friend of mine uh, in the Kansas area, no less Travis Wolf ran me through what I needed to do to re-edit that file to allow it to flash over it. But yeah, I had to do that all J that was not um, with the factory tool, factory software. I should say it wasn't with a factory software. Yeah. I still had to use a, a J box to, to correct those used modules, but yep. um, it looks like there's some new software coming out soon on the market that may allow us to do those a little bit easier. Nice. You know, it's, it's one of those things that when you're a shop that tries to do everything because you don't want to send your customers somewhere else, you kind of have to dabble in all of it. And it all, all of it's not going to be a moneymaker. A lot of it you're going to lose money on, but you're going to keep that customer at your shop. And that's, that's probably why we have the reputation we have and why we're booked out as far as we are, because we're the shop that can do it all in some way or some form, you know, we'll, we'll get the job done. Yeah. It's along the same argument of, you know, why buy this tool 
it wouldn't even have to be a scan tool, right? Why buy this um, cam alignment tool set? You're only going to use it once. This one time, you'll probably never use it again. We loan out or rent out a lot of tooling to other shops in town. Nice. Um, there's two or three shops that, that call us at least once a month and say, hey, do you have this? And it's normally a cam alignment tool. Yep. And I'll rent it to them for 40 bucks. It's like, nice. I, I bought that on Amazon for 60. So, you know, <laughs> rent it out <laughs> twice because I'm not going to go buy the OEM tool. If I can find one on Amazon to get the job done and it's the right tool, I don't care how long it lasts. I don't care if it's plastic. It's going to get that job done. I may never see another one of those 1.4 liter timing belt jobs or cylinder head jobs again. So if it works once, great. If it continues to work after that and I can rent it out to other shops, that's fine. I just loaned out a, you know, the three liter Fords that have the, the pulley on the back of the camshaft that runs down to the water pump. Yes, sir. Um, there's a special puller for that pulley. And I actually have the, uh, we have the OTC or Rotunda Polar for that. I think we've loaned it out to more shops than we've ever used it. Uh, I even had to loan it to the Ford dealership because they couldn't find theirs. And then I had to go over and show the technician how to use it because <laughs> he couldn't figure out how it was supposed to work. I'm like, do you have a regular pulley set? Because it was just the fixture that goes behind it. It wasn't the complete yep. kit that comes with the Polar attached to it. So the the tech couldn't comprehend how it was supposed to work. I'm like, man, you're, you're going to be struggling here. If you can't figure this out, you might want to stop now. We definitely buy a lot of tooling. We buy a lot of scan tools, but they're, they're mostly uh, just repeats or just so we have the quantity available for every technician to have a scan tool when they need a scan tool. Now I know a lot of people are not fans of snap on just because of their, their, maybe their prices are higher than the, Chinese competitors, whatever it may be. But honestly, I love Snap-on scanners. They're so easy to use. Normally, if it says it's going to do it, it'll do it. Yep. It's not in Changlish. You know, I can understand what the tool is telling me. And most of the time, you just plug it in and it works. Yep. So that's our, that's our number one scan tool. Through the shop, we have two Apollo D9s. We have the several of the Ethos Edge. We, we don't update those anymore just because they're not really supported. They don't update to the cloud. Right. So our, our pre-scan post scans don't save. So we, we quit updating those. I have a Triton D10. I have a Zeus. I have a Zeus plus. I have a modus edge. We have an old brick with all the adapters. You still need that for some old vehicles. The, what yep. is it? The MT 2500. Yep. I got the, the graphing one. I was very excited when I got it. And it gets used maybe, you know, once every two months, but when you need it, you need it. That's why I keep some of these really old factory scan tools. I kept my Tech 1. I kept, uh, of course, the Tech 2, the um, NGS, because sometimes it's the best tool for the job. You know, most of our stuff is Snap-on. Snap-on, honestly, the guys use a Snap-on most of the time. If it's something that Snap-on won't do, then we have the, I got the Autel IM508. Nice. I got the... MS 906 TS. I don't know. I, I have a hard time with Autel's <laughs> numbering of their models. It gets to be so many of them. I don't know why it can't just be one model that does it all. They, they have that. I think they call that the Ultra. No. But, but it doesn't do a mobilizer. <laughs> no. Well, that, right? and I don't know that it does TPMS <laughs> really at all. And yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So th- they could just build one that does everything, and we'd only have to buy one tool, even if, if it was eight or 10 grand people would still buy it because it does everything that all the other tools can do. 
but instead you have, you know, five different $2,000 tools, <laughs> but it is what it is. We, we have several. I like having multiple versions of the tool. I really like when the Autel 508 came out with the diagnostic package. Yep. Yeah, that was nice. It can kind of function as that because a lot of times when you're programming keys, you still have to go back with another tool to do another function on the diagnostic side. Um, so now you can use the same tool for that. Exactly. And then I have uh, the launch torque link, the launch torque five, maybe. Um, so I have two different launch devices there. OEM, I have you know factory GM, Ford, Chrysler, Toyota, Honda, Subaru. Um, we see a lot of Subarus. Uh, yeah. I know some people don't see a lot of Subarus, and they they're like, yeah, we got like two people in our town that own them. Um, in the Rocky Mountains, they are everywhere. I probably on a daily basis have three Subarus coming in for oil changes um, and then probably one other one coming in for repair. So it just makes sense to have a, a good assortment of scan tools for that. Yeah. So like SS, SSM three and four. Yeah. I don't have the interface to use three. You got a cricket. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to have to listen to that in the background, but yeah, SSM three installs when you install SSM four. Mm-hmm. But you can only use SSM3 with the Subaru Diagnostic Interface, the SDI, or the Denso DSTI. And I don't, that's probably what I'll end up getting is a DSTI just because it works with Honda as well. It's just not high in my priority list because aftermarket scan tools work great on Subarus. So I rarely have to go in to uh, the factory tool. But there's things with the factory tool, just like uh, IDS, it shows mode six data for that vehicle really, really well. And it just lays it out. And actually, Subaru will update live. So as those, I don't know if it just constantly refreshes itself, but if you clear uh, learn values on a Subaru and have the factory scan tool plugged in and pull up mode six data and go drive it, you can watch those uh, PIDs populate. Yeah, the cam learned values. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, we see some Subaru, but there's been a couple times I think I've really contemplated getting select monitor, but I... There's other stuff I'd probably get first, though. And honestly, the, the the launch scan tool or the Autel both emulate it pretty well. Yeah. But it's probably not necessary. That's what I was just going to say is, like you said, that the aftermarkets do really, really well. And even if you buy SSM4 or even Subaru Flash, right? You know, I think they're the whole system of buying a CD <laughs> and having it <laughs> mailed to you or DVD, whatever it is now. It's not the best way because like right now there's new flashes for the Subarus for the battery drain issue with the uh, communication module or the DSM. So they have an issue where if it can't find a, a cell phone tower signal, then it'll keep trying until the battery's dead. And that's a big issue on the, on the ones that have uh, the 3G boxes in them because 3G antennas are kind of going away. So they'll just keep trying to get that signal. Well, Subaru came out with reflashes for those vehicles, but I don't even think they're in the newest CD. I mean, I guess they might be in the one that just came out. The one that I have that's, you know, six or eight months old, those flashes aren't in there. Whereas if it was an online-based system, you know, we'd have those flash availability as soon as it comes out. Yep, that's crazy. The latest not on the disc yet. And then I know we had had talked to... a little bit briefly in our messages about what we were going to discuss. And, you know, we talked about the air conditioning stuff. That was the first, that was the very next thing I was going to bring up because you invited me into a group to preface this a little bit. And, and this nothing that Chad and I were discussing, but 
I don't want to say I thought I knew everything about air conditioning, but I just felt very confident in my knowledge and skill with AC systems, specifically on automobiles. And you invited me into a group where over the last month or so, that has been destroyed almost to an upsetting degree how poorly educated I was and not, I mean, I'm accepting a lot of the blame myself for not ever delving further, but also all the education I received through college, professional training courses, stuff like that to find out how little I really know about AC and not just like theory of operation, which maybe I'm okay on, but service procedures. So, I really, really wanted to thank you for doing that and knocking me down a lot of pegs because I needed that. That It's been very refreshing reading your posts and uh, video, watching your videos and then a couple of the other members on there. That all started, uh, <laughs> I think you've had Zach McLean on here before. Yes. He had sent me a link with uh, Tom Lex air conditioning and I started watching it. I'm like, man, I'm in the same boat as you. I'm like, I really don't know anything about AC. Like, yeah, I know how, how it works. I know how to run the RRRR machine to recover it and recharge it. And, you know, I've been buying leak detection equipment over the years where the shop has. We have the, the forming gas or leak, uh, trace, trace gas yep. leak detection system. After he sent me that link, I was like, wow, there's a lot of things that I didn't know and a lot of tooling that would make this a lot easier. So then I, I started just kind of searching around. I'm like, you know, I want to join a, an air conditioning group. I couldn't find an air, an air conditioning group on Facebook for automotive. I joined five or six different commercial ones, but they don't work on the same stuff. You know, the, the theory, the physics is the same, I guess. Yeah. Their control systems are different. Their compressor systems are different. You know, it doesn't all apply. Um, so I just decided that I would just make a group. And I honestly, I didn't expect it to grow the way it did. You know, after like the first week, we had like 100 members. And it was mostly just people off my friends list that I sent the invite out to. Um, mm-hmm. And then I sent uh, invites out to followers on my uh, Practical Mechanic Facebook page. And it grew a little bit more. And then and then Tom sent me a message. He's like, hey, we need to share this out more and, and get more people in here. So I, I think he either shared it out on his friends list or mentioned it in a video. But I would say, you know, in the last month, we've doubled our membership, I think we're almost to a thousand. A lot of it is, oh, I, I, I guess I, I shouldn't say, it's not like I know, but I would like to believe a lot of that has to do with the quality of text that you've got in there, like the Rich Falcos and, and countless others. They're mind blown. And so they're sharing that with people that they think would be interested. So right now you've got a flood, I think, of predominantly smart people smart techs that more so than just being smart, thirsty to learn this stuff. And it's so refreshing. That's the best word I can think of. It's just so refreshing to go and go like, okay, I've been kind of mistrained or there's a lot more I could have been taught about this. And now to see it and Tom sharing so much, so much stuff. And it's fairly easy to digest I don't know. I it's the the first thing that comes to mind is just thank you 
and to urge people to look that up and join to find if they're not watching your YouTube channel to find the practical mechanic on YouTube, start watching that. And then is it under Tom Lech L E C H or Lech air L E C H air on YouTube? Yeah. I think either way you search it, it'll, it'll come up. I think it's under Tom Lech L E C H. That's how I found not it. Not Lech. I said Lech. It's Lech. Sorry. His post in our group, he does voice to text. Mm-hmm. Yep. So sometimes you have to read between the lines. You, know? <laughs> you have to read it twice to understand it, but you know, he's a busy guy. He's in Cal- San Francisco, maybe San Francisco sounds right. And he's, uh, you know, all he does is mobile AC on automobiles. Yeah. Um, every once in a while he'll post about commercial air. His son has a commercial air business as well. You know, they kind of a family of doing AC work, some commercial, some automotive. Um, so he, uh, has a wealth of knowledge for sure. and has lots of tooling. Yes. Lots of different brands of tools. He uses them all. So he knows what's the best and you can see in his videos what he prefers to use. And what doesn't get used. So you kind of know that, okay, if I'm going to buy one tool that can handle the abuse of everyday use, even though I'm not going to use it every day, I want to buy what this guy's using, which is normally the field piece manifold. And I think that's what a lot of us have bought because of his videos. Uh, that's what I've been buying. I love that manifold because it it's digital. Um, it has a tightness test, which I use all the time. So I will, if I'm leak testing a system, I will fill it up with my nitrogen. I'll let it stabilize for about 10 minutes and I'll hit that tightness button, hit enter and walk away. And I'll come back 30 minutes later, an hour later, and it tracks how much pressure loss there is. You know, previously I would take a Sharpie and write or put a mark (laughs) on my gauge and then walk away and see if it drops. You know, there's definitely some benefits to the tooling he's using, but there's also a big learning curve and it's kind of how far down the rabbit hole are we going to go? I would say in the last four months I've spent $5,000 on AC equipment that I didn't know I needed and I may not have needed, but now I have it and now I can do it. And now I have enough tooling that I could do it mobile as well. So, you know, once you buy one piece, then it, it you know, you, okay, well I just need this other piece to, to go out and do it mobile. Well, now I need two recovery bottles and I need virgin refrigerant and I need leak detection. So it kind of amplifies into uh, spending more money, but that, that's how I think we all are with our tool addictions. You know, we, uh, yeah. same with EEPROM stuff. When I got into EEPROM or programming stuff and the KTAG and CAS, you know, I probably spent three or $4,000 and I haven't even used it. At least the air conditioning stuff I'm using. That's really true. I don't have quite 5,000. I'm, I, I will eventually. No, it will. Uh, I'm still waiting for the field piece manifold gauge set. Cause I blame Tom and his, uh, coupon code and really pr- pushing for it that it put it on back order so thanks a lot tom if you're listening to this obviously it's summertime and ac season so true tech tools is probably filling lots of orders for commercial guys but i feel like we're partially to blame because we probably uh we probably cleared them out of a lot of other tools and i i actually uh i was waiting for the infinicon or whatever however you pronounce it, yep. leak detector through true, true tech tools. And it was on backward. And I waited like three weeks and I'm like, you know what? I want this tool. I just bought it from another supplier and paid a little more. That's what happens when you want it now. You know, you're, yeah. you're willing to pay more. But like you said, you're using it. And now is the time. Now is the time to be using it. I had just bought the stuff, the uh, Robin air forming gas, or I should say at least the Robin air, the kit. Yeah, leak detection kit or forming gas leak detection kit. And so I thought I was kind of uh, ahead of the curve a little bit. 
I suppose technically it was, but I am was not happy with the regulator that comes in that Robin Air kit. Yeah, it's terrible. It only goes up to about 100 PSI. Uh, so I ended up buying that whole kit really for essentially the sniffer and the um, a couple of couplers, I guess, because I went to the welding supply, got a different regulator that will technically go up to 600 PSI, but it will never, never see that. Yeah, I thought I was ahead of the curve with that. Uh, I got the um, Micron gauge, Bluetech li- Micron gauge and setup, and then I ordered the uh, field piece manifold gauge set, and then um, I think the next will probably be the vacuum pump scale. I, I if I would have been on this group a few years ago, uh, our whole AC service system would look different. It would look completely different. And you know I, that's another reason I bought the stuff to do mobile is that. 1234 YF machine is so slow. And I understand that those are all EPA regulations, but when you boot the machine up and it takes five minutes to go through its own checks and balances, it's like, man, I could have been done with a 134 machine. When that machine's on a vehicle and and it's tied up, if someone else needs that machine, which is very rare in the shop that we need have two vehicles with that refrigerant. At least right now. Yeah. It'll be that way eventually, but, but now they're, they're waiting an hour for you to finish recovering this vehicle before they can use it. So some of these vehicles, especially if they come from the body shop, when they when they come back, we'll recover them. They go back to the body shop, get all the work done, to come back, and we'll recharge them. So now as soon as it comes in, I just slap my gauge set on there with the vacuum pump and let, just let it start vacuuming. Because I know that they've had it apart. The lines have been open. And there's probably moisture in the system. Well, if I'm using my manifold set and vacuum pump, then I'm not tying up a machine that one of the other technicians in the shop can be using. And I can let it sit there and run for a couple hours without worrying about it. Now, if it pulls down into the micron range, um, I normally shoot for less than a thousand. There's no spec. There's no. Exactly. Exactly. There is no OEM manufacturer spec for how far into a vacuum we should pull. To put it in perspective, people that don't know a micron versus inches of mercury. I think I looked it up where we normally work between zero and 30 inches of mercury. I think that's like 77,000 microns. And not to be like overly technical here, but you will never achieve 30. You, you can't have nothing, but you're going to get as close as you can. And now I don't know how it works at your altitude, but at my altitude, if you look at that vacuum gauge, because it's showing you, you know, gauge pressure on the machine, if it shows over 20, we're good. Because at our altitude, um, at sea level, you know, you have 30 inches. At our altitude, looking at gauge vacuum or gauge pressure, we can only get down to 24. Again, the gauge, mechanical gauge, needle gauge, it will show 29 or darn near 30. That's what it will show. We're at at about 500 feet sea level, above sea level. And, And ours will normally show, if you have a good vacuum and you on the machine, it'll show 22. (laughs) <laughs> and, yeah. and that's good. And you're like, okay, we're good. You know, charge it back up. Um, but the micron gauge, you know, it's an absolute gauge. If it got to zero, that is zero pressure, which which you would never, ever get to zero. You know, even space probably isn't at zero. No, yeah, you just, you can't have nothing. But there's a lot of those, you know, most vehicles I try to get below 500. But if I get below a thousand, I'm happy. Nice. But at the same time, there is no literature in automotive air conditioning that says, what you should get down to. And all those numbers, I, I would say that 
you know, my, my gauge starts counting down once it hits like 9,000, it switches from inches of mercury to, to microns. Mm-hmm. And that's probably all after that, you know, 29 inch mark on your gauge is that it starts counting down the microns. So you can really tell, you know, that, that level of resolution with the microns versus inches of mercury. If I get below a thousand, I'll let it run for another 20 minutes, see if it drops down further. If it's not in a, and I'm in a hurry, then I'll just, I'll, I'll kill it then and charge it up. You know, when I first started, I was letting it run longer just to try and get it down to that lower amount. But I was just wasting time really because the, the manufacturers don't require that. They don't have a, a spec for that. Uh, new compressors, they tell you to vacuum them for 45 minutes or whatever it may be, whatever the card says in the box of, with your compressor. But there's no measurement given. They just want you to vacuum it for a set amount of time where some vehicles I'll pull them down into a vacuum with, with the micron gauge and they'll pull down to 500 in two minutes. And you're like, okay, we're good. There's no moisture in this system. There's no air left in the system. I don't have to wait another you know, 20 minutes or two hours, whatever it may be. I can just charge it. And that's probably one benefit of living in an area that's in the desert. We don't have a lot of moisture in the air. So even a system that's been apart for a day, you know, you typically don't have a lot of moisture in and I can normally pull those down you know, within an hour, pull it down below a thousand microns or even down to 500. Yeah. And that's indicators of moisture or, or not so much the number itself, but the behavior. That's something we were never taught. I was never taught that you could look at and you, I don't think you would see it with a mechanical gauge, but if you had a micron gauge um, or a sensitive digital manual gauge set that you could see indications of moisture in the system that you would prompt you to keep evacuating for longer. But it's like you said, the I think the machines are all pretty much preset for 10 minutes. I think some people maybe bypass that and go 30. And in our summers, close to sea level, with humid atmosphere or ambient air, 30 minutes might not be enough, depending on the situation. And my gauge may show me around 29 inches of vacuum. I don't know how accurate that is. And there's a big difference between... 5,000 microns versus 1,000. Yeah. Like that's, that's a big difference. Yeah. And I've had a few vehicles that showed I could see the moisture in the system or, or it was refrigerant boiling out of the oil. It was trapped somewhere. Cause as your micron gauge starts pulling down, especially if you have a graphing, if you can link it up to your phone and watch the graph, you know, it starts high and comes down low and then it almost gets like a sawtooth pattern. It gets to a certain point. Exactly. Jumps up. You know, we might jump back up to 1,500 microns. It'll pull down to 800, jump back up to 1,500. Normally, that's an indication of moisture. Now, I had one vehicle that it was actually the front seal on the compressor that was leaking. Oh, sure. Because I'm like, oh, this thing's, I just let it run for, you know, a couple hours and it was still doing the exact same thing. But then I turned off the vacuum pump. It just stabilized. You know, I let it get down to like 1,000 and shut it off and it just sat there. But if you let it run down to 800, I think it would pull that lip seal open on the front shaft and, and enough air would come in that it would jump back up to 1500 and then seal. Nice. So, you know, we have some additional issues where in the commercial world, they don't have shaft seals that are exposed to the air. You know, they're all hermetically sealed compressors and they're all hard lines. Um, so they can pull those, you know, commercial systems down to a hundred microns by leaving the uh, vacuum pump running for four or five hours. Um, sometimes they'll run them overnight if it's a really big system. Um, Tom, he leaves his equipment on rooftops running <laughs> all the wow. time. And I'm like, wow, that would like kill my 
Robin Air machine if I just left it running all night on a vacuum. Yeah. Um, but these other vacuum pumps, the field piece pump that I have, you know, it's designed for that. Um, yeah, the, the oil reservoir gets hot, but it has a cooling fan. I, th- I think that one has a fan built in, but I'm not worried about leaving that one running for four or five hours. And the CFMs of that thing are so night and day compared to what we have in our machines. Yeah, I have the eight CFM pump. So I wonder what my Robin Airs are probably two, one. Uh, I have an old Viper unit that came out of an AC machine from 20 years ago that my dad has. And it's a five CFM. Okay. I think my terrible. Robin Air machines are like a three or a four, um, depending on which machine. Because we have an old R12 machine. Um, it, actually, it's a, it's a dual machine, uh, R12-134. And then we have a Robin Air 134, and then we have the Robin Air 1234. Um, but it seems like the, the 1234YF machine has a very small vacuum pump. Looking inside, whenever I change the oil, the, the unit is very small. So I, I, I imagine that the CFM on that pump is not real high. I would agree. They're probably just playing on this idea that the, or not the, so much the idea, but that the systems themselves are smaller, physically smaller. So they're they're justifying that they don't need a large vacuum pump. That's my guess. Yeah. And there's since there's no mandate of how far we have to go down or no recommendation, there's just a government mandate on the new stuff that you have to uh, pass a five-minute vacuum and leak test. So you know it, it's one of those things that if there's not a rule in place or a recommendation in place, then you know people are going to do whatever makes them the most money, which is with a 134 machine. I can have a vehicle recovered, evacuated, and recharged in 20 minutes. And I'll just slap some dye in it and have it come back in a couple of weeks and go over it with a black light and see if there's a, <laughs> any dye that shows up. Yeah, I mean, it's just so many levels to the game. Putting in a dye dye that's just dye, quarter ounce or whatever, is much different than a quarter ounce of dyed refrigerant oil. And are, are you talking about the BG stuff? Well, really anything, but I, I think... BG would be at the top of that list. I think there's other ones. I think Tracer Line might have somewhere. It's it's oil, but it's dyed. You give it a squeeze. Now, don't get me wrong. They have stuff that is dye. Concentrate, if you will. <laughs> but there's a big difference. And then I don't, we really don't use ester oils. But I think if there's 20 shops around us, 19 of them do. Mm. The only time I do is for a retrofit. Yep. Even then... You know, if you try to look up regulations or recommendations for a retrofit from R12 to 134, there is not one or two sites that have the same information. So it's like, well, what really works and what doesn't? For the most part, 90% of them, you know, I add two or three ounces of ester oil to the current oil charge that's in there and charge it up with 80% of its capacity and see how it does. Yep. And that seems to work. I just tell them, you know, when the system fails, if it fails, we'll put all new oil in it. We'll have all new components and we'll charge it up again. And then it'll last a lifetime. But I would say that very few of those actually come back with a compressor failure. Most of them come back with a leaky compressor a shaft seal on the compressor or lines that are leaking. And then at that point, then we'll, uh, then we'll replace the system. There are times where our shop is considered gratuitous. And it's choices of what to replace. Meaning, if it needs a compressor, it's getting a compressor, condenser, a dryer, or receiver dryer, accumulator, if you will. 
and any hoses that have any mufflers in them or canisters, if you will. And now the internal heat exchangers. Yep. And flushing as best we can, which really, when it's all said and done, we end up flushing the evaporator. That is considered gratuitous. In actuality, that might be the only right way to do it. And um, repeat failures, especially if the compressor fails from, I guess, internal damage where you're putting out particulate matter. I was stunned how many people still think you can flush out a condenser. Like, I thought that was largely put to rest a decade or more ago when they went away from that kind of the serpentine tube style condenser, if you will, where you had that kind of a single path that wound its way back and forth through the condenser and now to almost more like capillaries. Is that, is that a good way to describe it? Where there's multiple, multiple, multiple paths that the refrigerant can take through the condenser and you start blocking some off, you'll still have flow, but it doesn't, doesn't do its job anymore. It doesn't condense the way it should anymore. And there's no way to flush that out or not at a, at least out in the field, I don't think there's really any concrete way to get them flushed out as much as we would need to, to put them back in service. Yeah. I don't think that you'd ever get the, the, the micro channels unplugged because if you're flushing chemical through it, it's going to take the path of least resistance, which is going to be one of the open channels. Um, I don't know if you could ever get enough pressure and volume through all of those channels to get it to unstick debris. It'd have to be, you'd have to have like a monster tank of not only pushing uh, liquid through it, a solvent or a whatever cleaner, I suppose it could even be water and whatever, but it would have to sit in a tank of like an ultrasonic tank. And I still don't think it would get it all out. No, I don't, I don't think you could. The amount of money you'd have invested trying to get this thing cleaned out, you got a new condenser. Yeah. And, and, you know, we have a couple of years ago, we bought a flush machine from Aircept and it's a, it's a factory tool for Ford. I don't know if that many Ford dealerships have it, but it uses a Ford oil filter. <laughs> nice. But it's like a $3,000 plus dollar machine, but it recirculates the flush solvent. So normally, you know, we buy a $50 can of Duraflush, stick it in that, you know, canister, put air to it, and flush it through the evaporator and then blow it out with air. And that stuff just goes all over the place. You can't reuse it. Whereas now, with that Aircept flush machine, like you put your flush in, and you hook it up, and it's it's like an old coolant flush machine where it recirculates round and round and round, and it goes through that filter. You can hook it up to an evaporator and turn it on and walk away for 15 minutes and, and just let it do its thing. Um, there's a knob on it where you can reverse direction, so I'll flush it one way, and then I'll flush it the other way just to try and get any more debris out of it. What I'm hearing is I am going to absolutely blow $5,000 out of the water. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to do. Um Aircept is one of the only companies I know that makes a recirculating flush machine for those for air conditioning system. The times I've used it, it is a high quality machine. Now they recommend, you know, putting a gallon of their flush solvent in for every vehicle. Um, I'm cheap and I'll, I'll reuse it. You know, I'll use it on two or three vehicles. And then once I notice that the, the fluid's discolored or, you know, I feel like I've done too many vehicles with it, then I'll, I'll drain it out and put a new gallon in because it's filtering it really the only contamination we're going to get in there that's going to stay in that solvent is going to be the oil. So as it flushes that oil out of the system, it's the oil is not going to get trapped by the filter. It's going to stay in there and we're going to lose that solvent effect. I'll do two or three vehicles with a gallon and it's a, a gallon of that flush solvent is about the same as a Duraflush quart. You know, it's not a big deal. 
And really, I only have to do the lines in the evaporator because we're replacing the condenser, we're replacing the compressor, and expansion valve, if it has it. Actually, expansion valve, I'm, I'm kind of iffy on. You know, the, the OEM one normally works better than any aftermarket one I'm going to put on there. So I, uh, I may unbolt it and I may flush out the evaporator and then I'll clean out the expansion valve and put the original one back on unless I know I'm having a quality unit or if it's really easy to change, I'll put the aftermarket one on. Just see what happens. Yep. Yeah. And then if I have an issue, it's like, okay, I see, I'll hold on to the factory one until I know it's good and then, uh, you know, ship it. But we, we bought that flush machine because we had a, uh, a newer Chevrolet, it was like a 16 that the compressor went out on and it, it grenaded the compressor. We replaced the compressor expansion valve and the condenser and it lasted less than a week and it, it stopped cooling. Now it didn't grenade the compressor, but it stopped cooling. And it was a, I think that was a variable compressor as well. So it's a, a, a variable displacement compressor. It's a expansion valve. And, it, and I can't remember, I think the first time the, uh, the compressor just quit pumping that, that variable portion probably got stuck because there was probably some debris still in the system. The next time it came back was another week later, came back again and the expansion valve was stuck. Oh man. So I put an OEM, actually took it all apart, flushed the whole system again. We actually replaced the whole system again just because we wanted to make sure that everything, and at this point, you know, this is on us and not on the parts store. Um, but we're like, you know, this guy's going back to Arizona here in two weeks. <laughs> we're not going to have a vehicle with, with AC issues. So we pulled everything back off, reflushed the lines. And after that vehicle, as soon as I saw, I started looking for flush machines and I found the Aircept one. I'm like, okay, we got to have this because if we would have had this tool, we probably could have flushed out the line set and the evaporator core good enough that we wouldn't have had a repeat failure. But then again, with aftermarket parts, who knows, you know, <laughs> it, it could have been a complete coincidence that this system had a failure beforehand and we, we could have just been getting junk parts. You don't, you don't really know. Um, I didn't see any debris in the oil that came out of it the second time or the third time, but there's not to say that that debris wasn't there. So I feel a lot more comfortable now that we have a flush machine that I can just run on that vehicle for, for however long it takes to, to clean it up. Um, I just watched a, a webinar and it was through Max Air, I believe, but it was about uh, the new electric vehicles and their air conditioning systems. And it kind of blew me away of how expensive these systems are going to be to replace. One of their case study vehicles or demonstration vehicles was a new BMW electric vehicle. The first condenser is actually in the dash. Interesting. So it goes from the compressor straight to a condenser that's in the dash because it's a heat pump as well. Yep. So they're using that condenser for the heat pump section. But when you're not using, there's no demand for heat. It just has a flapper that closes off that condenser. So that condenser, you know, that, that 300 degree condenser is sitting there in the dash with no airflow over it. And then it goes back out to some switching valves and goes to the front condenser. And then it goes back to the evaporator core for, for cooling. So if you have a compressor failure, the first place that that debris is going to go is straight into the dash. So where most of these vehicles, we were getting away with not changing the evaporator because the condenser and the filter were going to catch everything. Well, now the first place that debris is going to go is into the dash unit. Even the evaporator cores, a lot of these manufacturers are going with micro-channel evaporators. Well, we can't flush those. So I think we're going to get to the point where vehicles, when they come in with an AC system failure, 
you know, it's going to be five or six thousand dollars because everything is going to be replaced. Some of these vehicles have five expansion valves on them now. Good gracious. They'll have like that BMW, I think, had five of them and four of them were electronic shutoff valves as well. So they could direct the uh, refrigerant where they wanted to go. Yeah, I suppose, right? They're going to have multiple evaporators because you're going to have the ones in the cabin and then you're going to have the one for the battery. Or depending on the size of the battery, you might have multiple for the battery to cool it and or heat it. Yeah, so they, they'll, they'll have a separate one for the glycol heat exchanger and then they'll run the glycol around the battery. Nice. Um, so at least that one's mounted under the hood yep. <laughs> where it's easy to service. You know, it's still, it's, it's going to be a mess. There's going to be more vehicles that are totaled out for AC system failures because an electric vehicle, you're not going to be able to drive it. The AC doesn't work. No. Because the battery is going to set fault codes. Yep. Overheat, shut down, it's pure EV. You're not going anywhere anymore. I think we're, we're in for some, some scary stuff. And I think a lot of our EV repairs are going to end up being AC related. The EV um, systems, would you say from that class that they're more mimic commercial refrigeration then? Yes, um, it does seem so. Multiple heat exchangers, a lot of them, the compressor's not, because it's electric, the compressor's not mounted on the engine. So they're running hard lines to everything. So we have fewer rubber lines, fewer failure points there. And then it's not been passed in the U.S. yet, but I someone posted in our uh, AC group already. Um, a Canadian electric vehicle. I don't know if it's Volkswagen or BMW, but it was running CO2. Yeah, I've heard about that for a long time. It just doesn't seem to manifest itself. I know it was running up against 1234 YF, and I don't know why they went with YF. If it's just the pressures they're running with CO2 freaks people out, I, I don't know. I, I think that's what it is. The, okay. I don't know what the static pressure is of CO2, but I think it's around you know 800 you know, yeah. with normal temperatures. So you're going to be operating a system that's probably going to be, you know, 400 to 1600 PSI. So that didn't really make sense when we had rubber lines. Yep. But now that we're running, you know, we can hard mount a compressor somewhere. I mean, it may still may be rubber mounted, but there's going to be limited flexibility. Then they could run even braided lines off of that compressor to handle that pressure. And then the rest of it's going to be hard lines throughout the entire system. Yeah. And that's another thing that blows my mind as well is the, they don't have a way to recover that refrigerant. They want you to vent it to the atmosphere, which is fine because it's CO2. Well, are you, are you venting it from the low side or the high side? Because the high side typically has more oil in it. As you vent it from the low side, is there still going to be oil that's coming out of that? So do you need a filter unit to catch the oil to measure it? Yep. How do you know how low the system was if you're venting it? You got an aerosol oil of what the hell it's made out of. I judge my leak size by how much refrigerant I recover from a vehicle. You know, if, if it holds a pound and I recover half a pound and it was charged last year, I'm like, okay, I, I need to find this leak because it's going to be down to 50% capacity again within a year. Well, if you're venting the refrigerant to the atmosphere, then you have no idea how much was in there to begin with. So you don't know if you had a leak or not. But as far as I know, they don't have any recovery units for CO2 in the automotive industry. So you're back to like the a la carte building your own system with a scale. Yeah. We will be equipped for because I'm not actually, I don't know if our, uh, if our units are rated for that kind of pressure, but I know that commercial refrigerant, a lot of those guys use CO2. And I, I think that's our 744. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, we just have to make sure that our equipment was rated for or had that in the compatible refrigerant list. It's going to be a mess. Um, so that's that's just one of the reasons why I've been uh, 
devoting all my time this summer to air conditioning research and, you know, trying to stay ahead of the curve. Cause I feel like EPROM stuff, you know, like we discussed earlier, I, I'm behind the curve on that. There's guys that are out there doing it better than I can. I can't comprehend and retain enough information to do that effectively. There may be something else that I can get ahead of the curve and be prepared for when it comes out. Cause we will be in shock when that first vehicle comes in and has a refrigerant that we're not used to. I have dedicated more time to AC than I would have ever imagined. I mean, this is such a blind shot. Just never saw it coming. Like subcooling, superheat, never heard of it before. Like you said, it, it's kind of refreshing because very we get we get tired of electrical. You know, that's all we see is electrical issues, computer programming issues, EEPROM issues, and it's all computer based stuff. Yep. You know, very few people are talking about engine internal or transmission internal stuff because we don't deal with it that often. But AC, we work on all the time and we just do it the way we've been taught. And it's not necessarily the best way to do it. And there's so much more information to be understood or, or researched or developed. And there's a lot of, a lot of training out there. Now, most of that training is commercial stuff, but it still applies. The physics are similar. Um, so yeah, I've, uh, I've all summer long, I've dedicated most of my time to AC education until like the last probably three weeks. You know, I, I think I hit the burnout stage where, <laughs> where I'm like, okay, no, no more YouTube videos on AC. <laughs> I say that sometimes, but then you or Tom blink a video and I end up watching it a few times. And a lot of it's out of pure, I watch a lot of it. And I'm frustrated and I'm not frustrated with you or Tom or anybody in that group, but I am frustrated with, I just feel like I was so miseducated. It's, it's almost like high school again, where sometimes there's a lot of stuff you learn or honestly college, right? I guess so much stuff we learned in auto shop classes that get into the profession and realize that you were misguided, but this is just so blatant. I think it's blatant and it's the theory and the practices are old. I, they're from early, early refrigeration days. These testing practices and diagnostic practices, well, I guess that which would be testing practices, these testing practices are still relevant now and we're never taught it. Yeah, and, and the systems really haven't changed until recent recent years with the uh, the hybrids and the electrics. You know, everything's been kind of the same. So I feel like they've like, okay, well, that's the same. Just keep keep doing the same old thing. And they never thought that we wanted to learn or needed to learn the down and dirty of it. It's almost like going through a lot of electrical training and and practicing electrical repair and diagnostics regularly and finding out that you could have been testing current the whole time, like directly rather than inferring or something like that. Rather than calculating it all out with Ohm's law. <laughs> yeah. And then having somebody like tell you like, well, yeah, we were doing this. 50 freaking years ago. I don't know why you guys haven't been testing current. It's like, I didn't even know you could I have to buy this meter. I have to buy this probe. I could be testing current directly. Yeah. It's like what I've been learning with some of this AC stuff is like, there's tests that we could have been doing long ago. And I guess I did go to a class years ago on temperature drop testing, but they didn't explain anything like subcooling and superheat and why they just kind of had some ranges. Like, why don't you buy this four channel, you know, thermocouple meter and you clip it here 
on the condenser here and here on the condenser inlet and outlet and here and here on the evaporator inlet and outlet. And if it's in this range, it means it should be in this range. But if this reads this, it's probably this. If this reads that, it's probably that. There's no real theory behind it. And since the manufacturers don't give us that information, we really don't know what's good. Exactly. You know, that's the hard part is, you know, now we have the equipment to do it because we've been the last three months, we've been, you know, buying this stuff and hook it up to a car. You're like, is that good or is that not? (laughs) I do that all the time. Should I have 20 degrees of subcooling across that condenser? It really doesn't matter what it is. If I plug something in, is that good or bad? I mean, at least now we can see what it is. And and maybe if we're having, I guess I haven't had any vehicles that have had issues that I've been trying to diagnose um, since I got the equipment. So I haven't been able to use the equipment to diagnose an issue. See, that by itself justifies buying the equipment. That's like when I buy a new scan tool, a lot of times, you know, you never need it. (laughs) Yeah. Buy a factory Nissan scan tool. I haven't needed it for like six months. It's a genius move. That's why we buy like the Jaguar Land Rover factory tools is then I don't have to work on that crap. Yeah. Yeah. When (laughs) when you do, it'll be outdated and you won't be able to use it. (laughs) It won't work anyways. (laughs) I try to check it on as many vehicles as I can that I have time for just so I have a, a mental picture in my head of what's normal. It's kind of like breaking out the scope for that first vehicle that comes in the door with an issue. If that's the first time you're using that scope, you're going to struggle. Um, It's best to look at known good vehicles to get a handle on what you should be seeing. And then using that information, applying it to this problem vehicle. What's different on this problem vehicle from what I've seen on 20 other vehicles that were good. So I feel like, you know, I have to start doing that with the AC stuff and looking at these subcooling and superheats and seeing what is normal and what is not. And then I think environmental has a lot of change on that. You know, Tom is constantly getting vehicles that are, you know, 38, 39 degrees and fogging up uh, condensing water on the windows. Well, I don't get that in Colorado because I don't have enough relative humidity in the air. And also most of the vehicles that I service are 45 degrees out the vent and that's good, you know, but I don't have the air density for additional cooling across the, condenser you know because thinner air lower humidity you know we have there's a lot of other factors that are hard to make known goods for years and years and years training classes they say oh if you have a ford your your borrow needs to be you know 28 29 30 right my borrow is 24 yep my hertz on the borrow is 143 that's normal nice i have customers that live at eight thousand feet if they drive down for a drivability issue, if I hook up that scan tool, the borrow is going to be 20 because wow. it hasn't, they haven't done any wide open throttle events or to update, to update it. So I have to go and I have to drive that vehicle and get it to do its updates for that borrow PID before I can diagnose what's going on. A lot of times they don't tell you that in class. We're 156, 158. And, and every, it seems like everything for known good values is based on sea level. And it, 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 I didn't even notice that I didn't because I wasn't smart enough or didn't absorb enough or hadn't seen enough vehicles in my early years. Um, but later on, I'm like, you know, that's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> yep. That's I'm never going to get that, you know, average running vacuum on a, on a vehicle. I'd say an older vehicles, the new vehicles don't have much vacuum, but most vehicles from the nineties to the, you know, mid 2010s, normal manifold vacuum is 15 inches where I live. And people would say, oh, you got cam timings off or something's wrong. No, that's normal. <laughs> that's, that's what they all are. 
it's just normal for us. So there is a, I wish there was some known good values, kind of like a hands did with the crankcase pressure Facebook group. But in the air conditioning stuff, I don't think that we're going to be able to apply known good values from region to region or vehicle to vehicle because there's so much difference in the, in the environmental. But I just figure if I can look at enough vehicles with my equipment to know what seems to be normal, then when I do have a problem vehicle in, I think it'll be a little bit easier to diagnose. I think I got to have you on again because this has been an absolute blast. This is so worth the wait. I'm telling you, this is great. And I, I think this winter uh, will we'll probably be easier to align our schedules. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been super interesting. I appreciate you having me on here. You know, I don't do much on other people's social media stuff. It's mostly just my own. Um, and even that has been lacking. It's, it's kind of refreshing to be able to jump in to somebody else's podcast or live stream and participate. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you get a chance, check out Chad's YouTube channel, the Practical Mechanic. Uh, also, if you're on Facebook, check out the uh, is it Automotive HVAC Technicians uh, group. Yeah. Um, be prepared to have your mind blown. Uh, I'll just warn you outright. It's a terrific, terrific group. Yeah, come in willing to willing to learn and uh, have uh, all your ideas kind of challenged and updated and your wallet's emptied. Also, thank you, uh, Aftermarket Radio Network, for allowing me to do this. Thank you to Nap Auto Tech Training for sponsoring. If you have ideas for the podcast or would like to be on, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find on social media, or you can email me at mattfonzopodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, take care. You've been listening to Matt Fonslo diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.